This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Scott Phillips. Covering game-by-game odds and futures markets. Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. This is Outside Shots, the college hoops podcast for betting underdogs on a nightly basis, fading Wisconsin basketball at all costs, including Greg Gard, and of course, discussing everything else you need to know on the odds board, presented by thelines.com. My name is Eli Herskovich. You can follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich. My co host name is Scott Phillips, who I'll introduce and he'll introduce himself in a second. You can follow Scott on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And you'll also have a chance to win an Amazon gift card. We're giving away four of those. So make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notifications for whenever a new episode of Outside Shots is released. Here's what's going to be coming up on our podcast schedule for outside shots during the college basketball season. In non-conference play, we'll have a new episode up every Monday morning or Monday afternoon, I guess, depending on when Scott and I decide to record. With the exception of next week, we're going to have our traditional Monday episode out on Tuesday. Live shows before big games in Discord. Go to thelines.com and subscribe to our Discord channel. Get immediate notifications on all of our best bets and futures bets, single game bets, everything you could find for not just college basketball, but every single sport. And then you'll be able to watch our live pregame shows for betting content. And also my standard write-ups over at thelines.com, previewing the biggest games of the day and my best bets. Scott will have some write-ups too over at thelines.com. And then coming up in conference play, once the big games get rolling among the Power 5 schools and the rest of college basketball, we'll have our traditional Monday episode, a Thursday episode to preview the Saturday games, and a live show on Saturday morning. So a lot to get to this college basketball season. This is my first college basketball podcast in a year plus. I've been waiting to get back at it, and I couldn't have a better co-host alongside me. Again, Scott Phillips. You can follow him on Twitter, at Phillips Hoops. He covered basketball, college basketball, for a decade plus for NBC, and now he's joining me with not only his college basketball experience, but a lot of betting experience mixed in (laughs) as well. So, Scott... Uh, Really looking forward to having you on along for the ride here on Outside Shots. It's going to be a great season, Eli. I mean, I'm really itching to go in terms of this season kicking off. Obviously, the first week slate, as we will get to later in the show, a little bit of a dud. But, man, you look at Feast Week and some of the stuff we've got rolling the pipeline for Thanksgiving. And, man, there's some really good tournaments coming up. It's kind of a wide open season, as we've discussed off the podcast. There's not really a clear juggernaut like a Gonzaga-Baylor situation a few years ago. And, man, this is just going to be a really Really fun season and a fun setup with this podcast. And Scott, I know you tend to be a little bit modest, but you probably, in terms of when I was thinking about people that I wanted to host with me on this podcast, your uh, basketball IQ, coaches like to use that as a cliche a lot, but you have a very high level basketball IQ. And again, your betting experience as well. 
a winning gambler. So really pumped to have you on board here. Uh, just in terms of your basketball knowledge, it's going to bring a lot to our audience that's going to continue to grow as the season moves along. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun getting back in the swing of things. I've taken a little bit of a break from college hoops the last few years and really focused most of my betting efforts on golf and been uh, pretty successful picking some futures for some majors and week in and week out with things like that. But, you know, I've been working in college basketball for about 14 years now, mostly on the elite recruiting level side of things seven years at NBC Sports with College Basketball Talk with the great Rob Doster and a lot of talented people in the mix there as well. And I also did seven years of high school uh, coverage for NBC Sports Chicago, doing television for a lot of the local high school games and trying to put some of those players in the spotlight before they went on to college in the NBA. So just really excited to be here. There's a great season that we have coming up ahead and, you know, just really a lot of things to get to in this show. So be sure to follow thelines.com on Twitter at the Lines US to get even more updates on our schedule over at Outside Shots. So Scott, you mentioned that there isn't a true juggernaut in college basketball this season. And we kind of saw that going back to last year with Kansas's run to win in the national championship. They opened the season at around plus 1400, so 14 to 1 odds. I believe those odds are coming from BetMGM and around 20 to one the previous April. So we saw a little bit of a dip in the value. And then you think about the run that they went on again during the 2022 NCAA tournament. They beat Texas Southern 16 C. They beat Creighton without Ryan Namhard. We're going to talk about the Blue Jays a lot on this podcast. They beat the Providence Friars, who I faded a lot and lost (laughs) a lot of money on going back to Big East play last year. But I did come back and cashed with Providence against Kansas. I believe they were six or seven point underdogs and then they played Miami of Florida in the elite eight a team that was fortunate in their own right to get to that point they beat Villanova with a hell of a shooting performance with Ochai Baji and couple that with Villanova not having Justin Moore in that game and then a North Carolina team that had its own fair share of breaks to get to the national title game they blitz in the second half with their transition offense and end up winning the title didn't cover thankfully because I had UNC plus three and a half plus four but Kansas wins the national title. So again, looking back at previous seasons, Scott, then you look at that Kansas team and we'll get to the odds board here in a second, but their run was flawed. And similarly with the odds board that we have at at the top, North Carolina, Gonzaga, Houston, Kentucky, those are the four teams. Odds are, you know, depending on the sports book, you have one favorite here, another favorite there. But none of those teams are juggernauts in terms of the top four favorites to win the national championship. No, certainly not, Eli. I think the consensus favorite is probably North Carolina by virtue of obviously being in that game with Kansas last year and making a little bit of a surprise run and finally kind of living up to those top 15 preseason expectations. They returned four starters. They replaced Brady Manick with Pete Nance. But, you know, this is still a pretty flawed team with a second year coach that's still really trying to figure out what they were and what it really happened during the regular season last year before they went on that run. So, you know, the talent levels there, we'll get into that with uh, Carolina, but again, there's a lot, these teams really have a lot of flaws. There's a lot of things that they lost from the previous year. You know, you have a Gonzaga with their rim protection issues with Chet being gone. You have Baylor returning guys from injuries and maybe not having a true point guard in play in terms of their high ball screen offense. And, you know, Houston's obviously returning some guys from injury as well that need to match 
fresh and, you know, they defied expectations last year without some key guys being out. So, you know, it's pretty wide open. There's a lot of second tier teams we've discussed off pod that we really like. And, you know, there's obviously the juggernauts at play, but no clear favorite by any means. And good stuff there, Scott. Let's dig into North Carolina a little bit more in terms of their roster construction for this year. So you bring back the ACC preseason player of the year and Armando Baycott, Caleb Love, RJ Davis, Leaky Black, all back. And you mentioned Pete Nance, who they got from Northwestern. Not really sure how Chris Collins still has a job with the Wildcats, but I digress about the worst team potentially <laughs> in the big time this season. But you lose Brady Manick. And I, I want to start there because if you go back, and there are a couple other things that made this North Carolina run to the national championship a bit flawed. But if you go back to the Duke game in particular and and other games during their run in the latter part of conference play, even when they, they beat Duke at Cameron Indoor in Coach K's final game there, and then you beat Duke in the final four in Coach K's final game ever as a college basketball head coach, Mannix's contested shot making, though, was unparalleled. There, there was no comparison to his ability to hit contested shots, and he was a okay rim protector in his own right. So yes, you're bringing in Pete Nance who could space the floor, but Brady Manick's shot making, I think is going to be missed on this team a lot. And then the other note that when I dig into their final four run last year, this was a a pretty poor transition defense overall. And we saw that in particular against Kansas in the national title game in that second half when the Jayhawks made their big run and overcame a a double-digit halftime deficit. But they also got pretty fortunate in terms of opponents' three-point shooting in March. Opponents shot 28.3% from three, and this is a team that ranked in the bottom half of college basketball in terms of open three-point percentage allowed. So they allowed their fair share of three-point, open three-point looks, and when you have Armando Baycott on the floor and teams can space the floor, you're naturally going to give up more open looks. And they got fortunate in the teams that they played in the tournament that didn't necessarily shoot all that well, or at least all all the way up to their potential. Yeah, I mean, I you kind of hit it on the head, Eli. I really think that they had some advantageous matchups there in the tournament. They took advantage of full force and you know, again, the, the key for me is Nance over Manic, and that's all that everybody's been discussing. We know what we're getting out of the core four returning starters. You could argue that R.J. Davis and Caleb Love are the best returning backcourt in college basketball. You know that Leaky Black is going to be the ultimate glue guy, defender, kind of fifth starter who doesn't really need his fair share of shots or touches to be somebody that really benefits them. And I don't think there was a more productive player in the NCAA tournament than Armando Baycott. I mean, the double-double machines the way that he was able to just clear the glass and get them moving on the offensive end. I mean, that's something that you can't take for granted. But, you know, Brady Manick was going through wars in the Big 12 when he played with Oklahoma. He had a lot of success even as a freshman playing with Trey Young. Pete Nance hasn't necessarily played on the big stage all that often at Northwestern. He's been productive. He's improved year over year. You could argue that his ceiling and his upside and his talent is better than Brady Manick, but does he have that dog in him, as they like to say, to really, you know, bang down low like Manic <laughs> would by the end of the season. Can he hit those big shots that Brady Manic hit in the NCAA tournament? The numbers suggest that he can. He is a little bit of a rim protector. He did shoot 45% from three-point range last season. But again, this is someone who really hasn't been battle-tested the way that these other guys have been on this roster and what Brady Manic did before going through the Big 12. And I really want to see what it's going to be like when that pressure situation hits and where Pete Nance looks from there. 
No, it's a great point. I can't believe you mentioned Trey Young. I mean, that yeah. was what, 2017, yeah. I want to say, when they lost to Rhode Island? Yeah, I mean, it was, the it was of the NCAA a long time ago. And it speaks to the experience level that Manic brought to the table. I mean, you know, he was their second gun on that team. And again, like he's you know, somebody who wasn't afraid to take and hit the big shot. Uh, and you know, that's going to be something that they need to find in terms of whether that's Caleb Love taking over or R.J. Davis. And, you know, who's going to take and make some of those big shots that Manic took last year? I will say, if you watch in the national title game in particular, Puff Johnson can shoot it, too. Absolutely. So you bring in a guy that can develop. There's a lot of potential there as a, as a depth piece for North Carolina. But similar to what we were talking about with Kansas last year, and granted, Kansas got pretty fortunate in the title game when Baycott... I believe it was his ankle kicked off the floorboard yeah. and it got re-injured. And then then you flip on the other end of the floor. Granted, Kansas, I don't know why they didn't push the floor to score on that <laughs> possession. They ended up calling timeout and going back to the half court. But McCormick takes advantage against the aforementioned Brady Manick in the post. So a lot of things to like about this North Carolina team. You mentioned arguably the best backcourt in college basketball, most dominant big in the country in theory, and again, arguably, but there are some flaws in terms of that run last year that make you question, is North Carolina, should North Carolina be the favorite? But then again, a lot of these other teams in terms of the top four, four shortest odds to win the national championship have their fair share of flaws too. And let's go on to Gonzaga, Scott, plus 900 around that price and tied with North Carolina at some of the sports books. If you go to the lines.com, you could price shop. And if you want to bet Gonzaga futures, you could do just that over at thelines.com. Sign up for some great sportsbook offers in the process. So the Zags bring back Drew Timmy, who probably because of NIL, I don't think he stays. Granted, I don't know how good of an NBA player he is going to be. He really is the prototypical elite college basketball player, kind of similar to Tyler Hansborough. I don't know how, how dominant he'll be in the NBA, but we'll see. So Mark Few's offense runs through the low post. And I honestly thought that Having Holmgren and Timmy on the floor last year limited Timmy's touches. That's a fair. Which that's a fair statement. Kind of, yeah. Which held Gonzaga back a little bit offensively. Still an elite offense, but then you watch their games in the tournament. They needed that second half run where Timmy dominated to start the second half against Memphis, and then offensively they didn't shoot well against Arkansas. And you could chalk that up to variance. But one point that you hit on with the Zags earlier on with with Chet Holmgren an elite rim protector oh, yeah. and his ability to switch on and off ball. So you lose, you're losing your best defensive player for a, a defense that, that needs that and is probably going to take a step back. Like we saw against Tennessee in that scrimmage, granted it's a scrimmage, but they didn't look great defensively. No. And again, I think one of the understated things about Chet Holmgren is not only the defensive acumen, but turning defense into offense. I mean, he could take a blocked shot or clear rebound and he can push the ball himself and get other guys set up. And it was such a unique thing to watch and a unique thing that Gonzaga had with their lineup that nobody else in the country had. And, you know, you take that away, it's going to be a more traditional team now. I think they go through Timmy pretty much every possession. But, you know, it's just one of those things yep. where they have the talent again. You know, you look at the blue chippers on this roster, the guys like Malachi Smith that they were able to bring in to bolster their backcourt. I mean, the talent level top to bottom is there. They should roll through the WCC. This is seven, sec uh, seven consecutive years they've made the second weekend at the very least. You know, they've ended twice now in that span on the last night of the season, losing in the title game. And there's going to be skeptics, and justifiably so. 
they haven't beaten a lot of elite level teams in the NCAA tournament during those seven years of great runs to the second weekend and beyond. But I mean, you just look at guys like Drew Timmy and Julian Strother. I mean, the talent level's there. To me, I think the biggest question mark is obviously Nolan Hickman. You know, replacing Andrew Nemhard, who we haven't really mentioned yet, is going to be a really difficult thing to do. I mean, Nemhard, a little bit unsung in terms of what he brought to the table with Timmy and Holmgren obviously taking center stage there. But, you know, Nolan Hickman had a five-star pedigree coming out of high school. Didn't really showcase that as much last season because he didn't need to. But this is really his team now for all intents and purposes. And he needs to showcase that he can get Timmy the ball, that he can score and knock down shots on his own, that he could push the pace for this offense when needed. And again, I think this team goes as far as Nolan Hickman goes. And granted, it changes up a little bit if you end up bringing Malachi Smith off the bench in terms of maybe not having as much pressure on Hickman and, and, to start you know, versus if you have... They've got other options, too. Smith in the starting lineup. Yeah. You know, again, when you look at the great Gonzaga teams of past, like they've got guys like Nigel Williams-Goss and Nemhard and, you know, guys that were established, very, very good college point guards that, you know, eventually turned into pro prospects. And Nolan Hickman has to prove himself in that regard. You know, obviously the pedigree was there coming out of high school, but a little bit shaky last year. And it was he was only 30% from three-point range. That's got to obviously improve. And, you know, again how he sets up Timmy is going to be key for everything because Timmy's going to eat this year. He's going to maybe be national player of the year just by virtue of all of the touches he's able to get inside with Holmgren being gone. But it's just a fascinating team in terms of their top to bottom talent. And Mark Few is really, you don't want to say hacked the game because they've earned everything that they've accomplished, but you know, they've got that kind of top four seed on lock as long as they're able to get through the WCC unscathed and win a couple non-conference games. And, you know, the loss to Tennessee, see a little bit concerning in the charity uh, matchup. Obviously, it's an exhibition, but to lose by 17 is a little bit of an eye raiser, but we'll see. I mean, I think that Hickman ultimately is going to have a solid season. This is once again a team that presents pretty solid value at where they're at in terms of at least getting to the second weekend and giving you a chance to have something in play, but I'm a little skittish in terms of taking them as a national title contender right now. Maybe they lose one or two early and that number drops, but you know, compared to some of these other teams, I'm not loving that value. I wouldn't bet plus 900, especially no, because there not. are some potential loopholes on that schedule to begin the season. We've talked about this off the podcast of where are some maybe buy low points or when might they come? We saw that with Kentucky going back to last season when they struggled highlighted by the the loss to Notre Dame in non-conference play. And then their national title odds all of a sudden dip or, or raise, I guess, depending on how you, how you look at it, from plus 1,800 to 30 to 1. That's when I bought on Kentucky and ended up losing to St. Peter's, so it didn't matter. But you can obviously <laughs> get a better price later in the season with some of these teams. And you were mentioning with Gonzaga's offense, obviously, so much upside. I think Julian Strother is going to take a massive step. Yes. Prototypical three and D in the NBA. But if you decides to put him at the four and space the floor around Timmy, which is what we've seen with some of these Gonzaga teams in the past, that makes them that much more lethal on offense. But then kind of what we've highlighted throughout this Gonzaga conversation on the flip side, your defense is going to take a step back without having that rim protector, without having a guy that could switch onto almost every position. As as thin as Chet Holmgren was, and as much as he maybe didn't provide the ceiling that some thought he could in, in that sort of an offense, he was an elite defensive player, like you mentioned, sparking that transition 
attack. So we're both not as sold on Gonzaga, but I think that goes to say the same kind of opinion with some of these other teams at the top of the odds board like we've we've harped on. So let's move on, Scott, to Houston, which is priced around plus 850 all the way up to plus 1100, tie with Gonzaga uh, as the favorite over at FanDuel Sportsbook. So you mentioned their guard play when we kind of went through these teams sure. loosely at the beginning. And you, you're bringing back Marcus Sasser and Tremont Mark off their respective season-ending injuries last year. My issue with this team, and I, I think those guys are going to be fine health-wise. And also you bring in Jarence Walker, who's a, a lottery pick. Yeah, he's a stud. Very much so. An athletic freak at both ends of the floor. Is in terms of their defense and their ability to gain rebound. Because you're losing three key players in that regard. And more... Fabian White and Josh Carlton. Fabian White and Josh Carlton, two of the better offensive rebounders in the country, and Moore's ability to, when they trap and generate turnovers and his length at the wing. So those are three key defensive players. And you think about where Houston was at both ends of the floor last year, a top 15 in terms of shot quality, points per possession around the rim. So that means that they limited teams around the basket a ton in terms of opponent's efficiency, and they were very efficient in their own right because they they generate so many second-chance opportunities. I, I get the addition of Jarence Walker, but those are three key pieces that you're losing in those respective areas. Yeah, their interior defense concerns me quite a bit. Obviously, this is a team built with a ton of dogs. You know, Kelvin Sampson's done an incredible job incorporating a culture that harps on defense. They get after you on all five positions. But, you know, Reggie Chaney at six foot eight, he's he does an admirable job in the post. But, you know, the two teams we just talked about preceding Houston, what do they both have? They have dominant potential post scorers. And if you look at Houston's potential weakness in that regard, you sum it up right there. I mean, Reggie Chaney at some point is going to have to guard an elite level big in the NCAA tournament. And the major question is, is he able to handle that or is the team able to swarm and contain and do things on their own? But that's my major question mark with this group right now. No, I'm with you. Again, I think guard play will be fine for Houston. Absolutely. Sasser and, and Mark can both score it, but the biggest question is, can you protect the rim and can you generate those second chance opportunities that have made this Houston team so dominant under Calvin Sampson since he's he's gotten there? Granted, the AAC, and I know we're talking national title futures, the AAC isn't what it's been in terms of having a Memphis caliber team. I know they haven't necessarily lived up to those expectations sure. under Patty Hardaway. But you're not, you don't have that second tier and third tier team. I think Temple can surprise a bit in this conference. Houston as a national title contender, similar to Gonzaga, similar to North Carolina. We both have our questions and our concerns about. On to Kentucky, Scott, uh, a team that I mentioned I had that national title future with last season. They lose to St. <laughs> Peter's plus 900 to, to win it all this year around that price tie for the the shortest odds with North Carolina at Caesars and all the way up to plus 1,200. Again, not a huge difference if you're looking for a bigger number on Kentucky, all the way up to plus 1,200. The reason why I think, Scott, we're both hesitant, uh, keyword hesitant with with a bunch of these teams, including Kentucky now, as we're on to the Wildcats, is Oscar Shibwe's knee injury. The status of that is completely unknown. Severe Wheeler's knee injury the status may be a little more positive, but it's still unknown in terms of his effectiveness and how long he's going to be out. So you have a, your reigning national player of the year in Oscar Shibwe 
a top two rebounding rate at both ends of the floor last year. We have no idea when he's coming back and to what effectiveness. Your point guard, who you have a recruit coming in, Case and Wallace, can probably f- slide into that point guard role. But Wheeler also top 20 assist rate last year, one of the best distributors in the country. So there are two huge unknowns for a Kentucky team that, yes, has reloaded its shooting. Uh, C.J. Frederick now healthy and Antonio Reeves from from Illinois State after Kellen Grady and his plantar fasciitis cost them a lot down the stretch, especially against St. Peter's. Two huge question marks, though, for the Wildcats. Yeah, I mean, the injuries are very concerning. I think they eventually figure things out, and the front court depth is going to be just fine without Oscar. Obviously, he's the national player of the year and is the favorite to, to repeat this season, but you know their front court depth with how Jacob Toppin looked in the offseason is solid. Chris Livingston is another solid addition on the wing who plays a little bit bigger than 6'6", and you know Damian Collins and Lance Ware, I think, should take another leap as well. So, you know, they'll be able to withstand without Oscar for a little bit of time, but they really need him to be back and healthy and at his best if they're going to be the type of Final Four caliber team that people envision. And, you know, Kaysen Wallace is getting some Jamal Murray uh, comparisons I saw with, uh, you know, it's it's just interesting to see how he's going to fit in next to Wheeler or if he's going to have to take over for Wheeler, if he's out for any sort of significant time. Um, you know, I do think Reeves and Frederick offer a lot of floor spacing that they were maybe missing last season. Uh, Reeves is a bucket. I mean, he was getting 20 a game at Illinois State. I know that obviously the Valley, not anywhere near the SEC, but he also doesn't need to be any sort of marquee scorer. And if you're drawing doubles and triples down in the post with Shibway, then you're getting a lot of open looks for your guys on the perimeter. But, you know, for for us right now, the number is really contingent on the health of two of their starters. And, you know, there could be some dip in value early if they're losing some games or, you know, some momentum gets lost and Big Blue Nation gets a little bit testy. And you talk about that John Calipari <laughs> hot seat, which, again, seems absurd to me that he would potentially be on the hot seat. But that's what Kentucky expects is uh, Final Fours every year. And they haven't been since 2015. So I get it. But. Again, I I like this team quite a bit. I do think that if they are healthy, that you can book them as the SEC favorites for right now. But we got to monitor the health situation of Shibway and Wheeler. I mean, it's definitely something that's a cause for concern right now. And you look at the SEC conference odds, Kentucky plus 175, Tennessee plus 325. You mentioned you're high on the balls and a lot of good reason to be. And we'll get to Tennessee in a little bit. Arkansas plus 375. Florida, 20 to 1. I'll, I'll touch on the Gators. You love the Gators. I'll, little teaser. <laughs> I, do, I do love the Gators. I might love them a little too much. I don't know if I love the price as much as what I got it at, but uh, 20 to 1 to win the conference. So we'll get to we'll get to Florida a little later on when we talk about some long shots. But right, I mean, two injuries to monitor. You look at the beginning of Kentucky's schedule. Michigan State, they should handle without Oscar Sheba. You mentioned the depth behind him in the front court. Gonzaga, though, even though John Calipari won't play the Zags at the kennel, like Texas last year, I'll give my boy Chris Beard some credit, played him and got blitzed uh, at Gonzaga at their home court. And then UCLA, uh, Michigan on Kentucky's schedule as well. Two teams that I'm not super high on in terms of the, the way they are presented in the, the market, especially with national title odds. But again, we'll touch on those teams and the rest of the odds board as we move along. But staying atop the odds board, Scott, one last team around the prices we've already mentioned and probably a team that I think we're we're both higher on than the four others and a better price is the Baylor Bears. Anywhere between plus 1,200 and plus 1,600 to win the national title. 
Bears are rated number one in my preseason top 25 power ratings. You can check that out over at thelines.com. Now, I know you mentioned this when you were kind of flowing through things a little bit with some of the contenders. And I agree with you that the guard play in terms of how much they run their ball screen op- offense and operate it under Scott Drew is a little concerning. So you think about what they lost, you lose James Akinjo, and granted, he was a little shot happy at times, but it's still, a, it's still a loss. Yeah. Right, yes, very, very much so. <laughs> uh, Matthew Meyer is off to Illinois. Jeremy Sohan and Kendall Brown, two of their five stars from last season, both gone, but you get a healthy LJ Cryer and Adam Flagler. Again, to what level those guys are in terms of what Drew wants to do offensively when the pressure is on both of them. I like Cryer a lot. The big thing, though, is you add a three-level score in Keontae George. They haven't had that type of scoring option and scoring threat, at least last season. If you go back to two years ago winning the national championship, obviously you have a score like that pretty much at the one through three spot. Getting that piece in a five-star freshman that could do just that, I think takes their offense to another level from what they had last year as they were a little bit limited. If you go back to the, the North Carolina second round game before that, before their defense ramped up, but before they ramp things up in transition and turn that North Carolina defense around and out of the half court where they're most comfortable. So I have my questions and concerns about backcourt in terms of the ball screen offense, potentially no Jonathan Tamatatra for the entire season, that is. Still a flow thamba, but there are concerns. But among the five teams that we've mentioned with Baylor being included, I'm probably most comfortable with the Bears, especially with that price. That's interesting because for me, I've got those question marks in terms of Flagler and being a true point guard and a ball screen heavy offense. You know, Keontae George is going to make things a lot easier if you can get him the ball and make him a playmaker as people envision him to be. Langston Love is a little bit underrated in terms of his ability to maybe be a sixth man or somebody that can also come in right away. And, you know, that front court is going to be very solid. Jalen Bridges is obviously a battle-tested Big 12 player who should step in at the four. Flo Thamba is about as solid as it gets down low, but you know, between the issues with not having a true point guard in that ball screen offense and the lack of front court depth, if anything does happen with foul problems or injuries, uh, you know, you touched on the season end or, you know, the knee issue of uh, Jonathan. I, I can't even pronounce his name. I'm not even going to try with that one. Tamalatachua. <laughs> Tamalatachua, sorry. Um, there you, go. you know, it's just <laughs> one of those things where you're trusting Scott Drew. If you're taking this number right now, you're trusting what they've accomplished the last few seasons. They're going to defend. You know that they're going to get after you on that end of things. And again, I, I'm not trying to say that Flagler and Cryer are not great players. They are. They're all, all big 12 potential players, excuse me, but it's the fit and the way that they run that ball screen offense that I'm a little bit concerned about. And I think they're placing a lot on Keontae George's shoulders right away. You mentioned the no middle defense, Baylor top 10 in terms of isolation, scoring efficiency defensively last season. So that that means they didn't allow opponents to get into their ISO sets and when uh, obviously that has to do with when you're trying to drive to the basket and then you shut that down with the no middle defense. It seems like everybody copies each other in this conference. Everybody runs a no middle defense, probably from Mark Adams going back to when he was an assistant under Chris Beard. Now everybody seemingly <laughs> runs it at the big 12. Yeah. The big 12 is a gauntlet. Yeah, no, it's, it's a crazy good conference and differing opinions there on Baylor. I don't have a bet on Baylor, but among the five teams we've talked about most comfortable backing the Baylor Bears, especially at that price at, at plus 1600. But it's fair to question the guard play. I guess I'm a little higher on 
on Cryer within this ball screen offense fit. And Flagler, again, I've, I think produced at a, at a pretty solid rate. Losing to Kinjo and losing a little bit more scoring in the backcourt may hurt more than I anticipate. And maybe the collective group think about Baylor anticipates, but we'll continue on here around the college basketball odds board and sticking in the Big 12, Scott, with Kansas priced around plus 1,500, staying in this conference, you lose a lot. And when you think about what a national champion loses, it's probably around this, but I think the Jayhawks lost a little more. When you think about the scoring efficiency between Ochai Agbaji, Christian Brown, Remy Martin, who came around and came along big time in the latter portion of a Big 12 play and then in the tournament, hitting some huge threes for them in the national championship against North Carolina and a depth piece in Mitch Lightfoot. And while McCormick was pretty inefficient overall throughout the season in the tournament when they needed him, and especially in, in that North Carolina game, he was extremely efficient. So you lose those five guys and then you bring in a high-level score and shooter and Grady Dick, a five-star. You bring in Kevin McCuller from Texas Tech. Uday, the big that's probably going to be leaned on most to replace McCormick's production. And MJ Rice. So the big thing for me, going back to last year's Kansas team, Scott, was, and I mentioned this and harped on it with the national title game, Kansas super efficient in transition and most efficient in the half court when McCormick, when the ball was rolling through McCormick. Not as reliant on their post touches as a team like Gonzaga, but they still need a player like McCormick to be efficient. Now that pressure is on a a five-star freshman in Uday. So a lot of question marks for me with this Kansas offense in the half court. And then without a reliable shooter, or at least, again, what Ochag Baji brought to the table in terms of shooting efficiency. If you go back to the Texas Tech game at home in conference play, the Villanova game in the Final Four, you're losing a lot of established offensive pieces, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there's major question marks here, Eli. You know, again, the front court, not having that traditional Bill Self big man that we've come to see over the last, you know, eight to 12 years. I mean, you go from David McCormack, who is an aircraft carrier inside, you have Udoka, you have Thomas Robinson, you have all of these guys that they were able to flow through. And there's major question marks there now. And, you know, I think Jalen Wilson's going to be a massive key for this team. He's really got to upgrade and be kind of the top 40 recruit in his third season that this program envisioned him to be. And Jalen Wilson, to me, is is fascinating because he could go small ball at the five at times. And without that true true traditional post player they've had Wilson at the five at times and had some effective lineups and if they're switching everything and Wilson's athleticism gives them a unique edge there but you know there's going to be shooting question marks and a lot of uh, that's going to be put on Grady Dick very early as a true freshman which is something to watch for you know again I, I like this team Bill Self always has you in the mix no matter what he's one of the greatest coaches that college basketball has ever seen but Again, like what are these lineups going to look like? What kind of growth are we going to see from Jalen Wilson? And will the perimeter shooting be consistent enough to out, you know, to not be able to flow through somebody on the interior as they usually do? Right. And no, Wilson was supposed to be that last year, was supposed to take that big leap, didn't for the most part. And then, right, now you need him to do just that this season. And He'll have the opportunity. McCuller as a ball handler, I think, is big because he can attack you off the dribble. He could shoot it at a decent rate, mm-hmm. too. So you have a reliable ball handler. I Dewan Harris, guy we haven't really mentioned sure. yet, took some and made some strides, especially when Martin was dealing with 
the injury more so throughout pretty much, you know, the back end and non-conference. And then, you know, you need that stability at the point guard position, which I think McCuller also provides as a secondary ball handler. You're listening to the lines.com podcast network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top U.S. sports books all in one place? Then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust. Check out the Lines.com NFL Megapod as Matt Brown, Steven Andrus, and Adam Candy break down every game for this weekend's football slate. Join the Coast to Coast podcast crew Mondays through Fridays as Nate Weitzer and Josh Lander bring you the best player props and game lines for Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And tune in to Beat the Closing Line twice a week as Nicole Russo, Mo Nawara, and Eli Hershkovich dive into NFL opening lines, plus special guests from the sports betting world. So subscribe, rate, and review to the Lines Podcast Network, the source you can trust to make you a better sports better. So Scott, we've hit on kind of the core six, and I wanted to throw Kansas in there because the defending national champion, of course. Now we move on to some of these other teams near the top of the odds board. If you go over to the lines.com again, you could find the best price if you like any of the teams we're about to mention. UCLA around plus 1600, Arkansas around plus 1700, Texas anywhere from 20 to 30 to 1, Tennessee 25 to 1, and Creighton, which opened at 90 to 1, around now plus 2500. Of the six teams, Scott, which team do you think is most overvalued in the market? I think you have to be a little bit concerned about Arkansas. Obviously, Eric Musselman is kind of made himself a a darling of the transfer portal and being able to clean out a roster and bring in new pieces season in and season out. But, you know, every single season you have to see what that recipe for success looks like. And, you know, a ton of buzz around Nick Smith Jr. and deservedly so. He's probably the best pro prospect of any freshman in the country, but you're putting an awful lot on a freshman's shoulders right away, asking him to probably produce somewhere between 17 and 20 points per game. And, you know, Eric Musselman is good as any coach in the country at exploiting mismatches, getting somebody like Smith the ball in advantageous situations and taking advantage of that over and over again. But, you know, you have to share minutes and you have to get an entire group of guys that are basically new and coming together to buy into things. And at that number, um, that's that's a lot to ask. I mean, the numbers that we see Arkansas, and I'm looking anywhere from 15 to 20, I mean, those are similar numbers to some of the teams we were just talking about that return of a lot of experience and Final Four acumen. I mean, Arkansas is coming off of a ton of buzz. Obviously, the Elite Eight was there last season. Smith is as good as it gets. Back Anthony Black is a monster recruit. Yeah, back-to-back Elite Eights, you're right, but... Again, I, I want to see how these pieces fit at that number before I truly buy in. No, I'm I'm with you because let's take a step back to last season. You lose Jalen Williams, who probably drew as many charges across college basketball maybe in the <laughs> last decade. Man, I I could not stand betting against Arkansas basketball and watching him take all these charges that probably should have been, been called, but nonetheless. You lose him. You lose J.D. Note, who is a, a shot maker down the stretch in games. Probably their, their lead ball handler down the stretch. Audis, Tony, Trey Wade, Amude, and Chris Likes. And Likes, kind of what we touched on with some of these other guys that are that are back in college basketball. Probably a little too shot happy. I guess Akinjo was the comparison I was, I was thinking of. Sure. Just a little too shot happy at times. So you lose 90% of your, of your scoring. And like yeah. you mentioned, you, you're bringing in these five stars in Smith and Black and, and Walsh and, and Brazil, who I like too, around the rim. 
and the Mitchell brothers from Rhode Island, formerly of, of yeah. Maryland. Graham I like from Ricky Arizona. Council a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I like all these pieces. This is this right. is talent. You know, you're it's naming talent. name after name that's contributed, and not only that, but tons of guys that played a lot of minutes and averaged near double figures last year. But yeah, right, exactly. How quickly can can all of that come together for a national championship? And you, one other stat too that I was looking into: Arkansas relied on the free throw line and free throw scoring rate. At, at such a high clip, the 31st highest free throw scoring rate across college basketball. When you think about guys that were elite at doing that, Jalen Williams and, and Note in particular. So you're not only relying, Scott, like you mentioned, on these freshman scores to, to adjust to the collegiate level and perform at a high level early on. That's kind of what you're betting into at that number. But you're losing a ton of scoring seemingly where they've gotten it in years past at the free throw line. Definitely. And some of that will be mitigated. I mean, Ricky Council is a tremendous free throw shooter. So, you know, you try to get him in spots where he's drawing fouls. Obviously, Nick Smith is going to draw a lot of fouls. This team will continue to get to the line. It's just how effective they are converting there and whether that's going to be a staple of their offense again. And, you know, I, I really like this team. I do quite a bit, but not at that number. And I think that there is a chance that, that value doesn't really dip. They don't really have a great non-conference schedule. They shouldn't really be tested all that much. I mean, I'm looking at it now. They face Louisville. They face Oklahoma. Uh, Just kind of a blah non-conference schedule that doesn't really test them very much. But, you know, that also gives them time to acclimate and to gel before the SEC season. And, again, I was hoping that that number might dip. Maybe they get upset and that number does dip, and that's a time to maybe look at that value and reassess things. But at the current state of things where that number is, I'm not loving it. Even go back to last year, again, you need those kind of pieces, experienced pieces in in Note and Williams to make that run, and you're you're missing that. We we see this year over year, especially with a team like Duke, right, who we haven't really touched on that much yet. When you have those elite freshman talent or that elite freshman talent in store, it can carry you through the regular season, but can it win in March? And it, it hasn't for Duke in, in years past, especially recently, I should say. So it's, it's, it's worth noting with this Arkansas team and a couple other notes that I want to hit on before we get to our national title futures bets from this crop is, is UCLA. You lose Johnny Juzang and for a, a UCLA team that, yes, you still have shooting with Singleton and, and Clark, but you're missing a lot of your interior pieces from last season. No Cody Riley, no Miles Johnson, even though he didn't really produce at the level that I think Mick Cronin wanted. So I'm not super high on, on UCLA from a price standpoint, Scott. And then Tennessee, I like, but you're, you don't have that go-to scoring option. I think they'll be an elite defensive team. But again, similar to North Carolina team, I mentioned that allowed a ton of open threes. Tennessee similarly did the same thing last year. So a defense that can get exposed a little bit more than the numbers allude to on the block. We saw Dickinson do that in the Sweet 16. Two teams that I like in a sense in UCLA, who is Hami Hakez coming back, a potential national player of the year candidate, won an award winner in theory, and Tennessee who brings in Julian Phillips and, and Tyree Keith, who I think will make a difference off the bench. But in terms of the number, I I don't really love it for the reasons I mentioned. Yeah, Tennessee's intriguing because obviously they've got that notable win over Gonzaga. And again, you talk about exhibition, but 17 points is going to get people riled up and it's going to get people noticing you. And, you know, you talk about some of their pieces returning, Santiago Vescovi and Josiah Jordan James. Those guys have been through a 
ton of SEC battles. Like they're going to be among the most experienced duos returning in the conference. But, you know, again, there's a lot of buzz around them. I don't necessarily know if I buy into it. Ken Palm has them fourth preseason, which is interesting to me, uh, much higher than the books are really placing them. So if you really are a disciple of Ken Palm and believe in what he is putting forth, then Tennessee's very undervalued. But, you know, again, I think there are major question marks with this team. You know, you, you've said this, Rick Barnes in March. I, I don't think I... I'm as worried about that as maybe you are, but you know, it's something to keep an, uh, keep an eye on. Going back to this crop of teams that I mentioned to you in terms of the next year, my first college basketball futures bet in this group. And I mentioned, I have one other in Florida that I bet back in April. That was more numbers based, but Texas, which I bet at 35 to one is now as low as 20 to one. And you could still get that 30 to one bet down at Caesars. So you lose Courtney Ramey and you lose Andrew Jones, you lose Jace Fabra, some shooters, and I think still replaceable pieces. And you bring in Tyrese Hunter, who's the highlight of the offseason for Chris Beard, probably a product of NIL, I think, <laughs> along the way. Yeah. And yeah. Serge Jabari Rice from New Mexico State, Dylan Mitchell, the five-star, and Arterio Morris, an elite recruit as well. So defensively under Chris Beard, you think about the no middle defense that, again, seemingly every or the elite Big 12 teams run and operate. Texas led up the fourth lowest uh, shot quality points per possession in the half court last season. Now you add a healthy, another healthy rim protector. Now Dylan DeSue was not healthy when he transferred over from Vanderbilt, still recovering from knee surgery and wasn't healthy overall last season in the latter part of conference and NCAA tournament play when they made that run and nearly upset Purdue in the round of 32. So you now have two undersized rim protectors, but still rim protectors nonetheless. And that's kind of what Beard's no middle defense hinges on. If you go back to the Texas Tech team that had Tariq Owens and had Noren Sodiase, you had two traditional rim protectors. And Texas's defense was already elite in the half court last season. And then you get an athletic wing in Dylan Mitchell who can switch and guard any position. You add an elite on-ball defender who played in a no-middle defense, going back to his one season in Tyrese Hunter, uh, who also ranked in the 99th percentile. This was in, not absurd in terms of point guard play, I guess, because if you're an elite point guard, you might as well rank in these departments, but it still shows you how good Tyrese Hunter is. Ranked in the 99th percentile in terms of steal rate and the 98th percentile in terms of passing efficiency which now sets up Marcus Carr to play not just off ball because he'll still have the ball in his hands, but in terms of allowing Carr to focus on his scoring a lot more. The one area I have concern about is three-point shooting besides Serge Jabari Rice, a 1.118 points per possession for Jabari Rice on catch shoot looks. That's uh, from Synergy. So besides his shooting, can you rely on your other guys to produce if Hunter isn't? refined offensively in terms of his jump shot. And then unless Timmy Allen adds something from three. So I think the, the other areas where Texas can be so dominant in kind of mitigate that. And I, and I really like the number that I got and you could still get that 30 to one over at Caesars. 
Yeah, I mean, this team underperformed last year. There's no other way to cut it. There was a ton of hype entering Chris Beard's first season in Austin. He brought in all of those top guys from the portal and really had the icing on the cake by getting Marcus Carr. And then a lot of those guys individually just didn't live up to the expectations, whether it's because of injuries like Dylan Daisu or just not adapting to the Big 12 and to maybe Chris Beard's uh, philosophical defense or defensive philosophy, excuse me, than you would have thought. But I think another year, of these guys gelling together, another year of health, adding Tyrese Hunter, who was incredible in the NCAA tournament. I mean, he became an NBA prospect with the way that he was elevating his shooting compared to what the numbers suggested during the year. But, you know, you love the fact that they have two guards that could, you know, take over and are capable of handling the ball with Carr and Hunter. They've got a lot of, you know, unsung guys like Brock Cunningham who are veterans who can come in and play a role off the bench. And, you know, there's some real talent with Dylan Mitchell and Arterio Morris that could come in and also produce as well. So, you know, the talent is in place to make another run. I think people are just a little bit skittish based on the underperforming nature of last season, and that's why you're getting some of these numbers right now. But if you believe in Chris Beard, if you believe in the talent level of this team, 30 at that number is very good right now for the talent level this roster has. No, yeah, I mean, you mentioned going back to last season too. And first of all, We've seen it with coaches, and granted, I'm, I'm back in one with my second futures bat again, a much bigger number, but it takes about a year for a coach to truly implement his system, especially a defensive system that relies on rim protection or at least sound bigs to defend the rim and defend the low post. And with one of them not being healthy for much of last season and then coming back and still not being 100% into Sue, it, it creates a bit of an issue in terms of the structure that Beard runs at that end of the floor. And then... In terms of the backcourt, man, like you mentioned, you know, we we harped on this with North Carolina with having an elite backcourt and arguably the best starting duo in Caleb Love and RJ Davis. You can make the case that Texas has the best collective group of of lead guards in terms of Hunter, Marcus Carr, and Arterio Morris, if Morris is as good as advertised, which he was in their scrimmage against Arkansas. Again, it's a scrimmage, but he looked apart against a, a very high level freshman laden team in, in the Arkansas Razorbacks. Yeah, absolutely. The talent is here. Uh, nobody's questioning that. It's just whether a lot of these guys finally live up to the expectations that were in place last season. I think they're capable of that. I like the number at 30. Again, I think Chris Beard, he's shown what he's capable of, and he's usually able to put together rosters on the fly that are successful. Now that he has guys that are returning and that have had a year under their belt with him, I think that they have a very high upside. Now, Scott, without further ado... You have a futures bat that is in this <laughs> six-team tier, and I don't necessarily agree with it. You like my Texas bat. I like the team. I don't love the number considering where they opened sure. at, but without further ado, what is your first national title futures bat? I'm intrigued by Creighton, and I wish I would have gotten the number, obviously, after the second-round loss to Kansas in the NCAA tournament last year where they were missing so many key pieces but still gave the Jayhawks one of the more memorable games of the tournament in terms of just, you know, what's happening here type of games. But, yeah, the thing that really stands out to me about Creighton is that last year they got it done defensively, and a great offensive coach in Greg McDermott really didn't have a very good offense. 
And, you know, he's the type of coach that can get, you know, open looks from multiple guys at a moment's notice. And guys just didn't deliver last year. But, you know, I think now that they're healthy, now that they have two guys that can lead them in terms of primary ball handling, having Ryan Nemhard back, Trey Alexander really elevated his play once Nemhard went down in February and really looked the part in the Big East tournament, the NCAA tournament. And, you know, adding Baylor Shireman, again, you know, maybe not a household name for college basketball fans, but the reigning summit player of the year who really should do quite a bit for that offense. He can knock down shots. He spaces the floor at 46%. He's an elevated passer who is very, very good at moving the ball without having to think about things. And I think having a capable veteran guy on the wing like him coupled with what they have in the backcourt, coupled with Ryan Kalkbrenner's defense on the interior and Arthur Kaluma and his athleticism and the leap that he could take this year. I'm fascinated by this team. You know, they add a transfer in Francisco Farabello, who's TCU's best shooter last season. You know, you look at Mason Miller, who's the son of Mike Miller. I mean, you think about some of the best shooters that the game has seen over the last 20 years, and Mike Miller is near that top of that list. And, you know, having his son in the equation, who is a better athlete than people give him credit for, is just another rotation piece. And, you know, you're looking at Creighton, in some cases, at a number near 30, I like what I see here. I think that their offense does improve this season. They have one of the better offensive-minded coaches in the country. And, you know, you have that reliable piece down low in Kalkbrenner, who not only defends the rim and, and gets things done down there, but does so without fouling. I think he only reached four fouls one time last year, didn't foul out once, and you know, you look at the type of bigs that he has to face in the Big East with UConn and some of these other teams, and you know, he's got a chance to really make an impact down there just by himself. And this team really fascinates me if that offense gets clicking like they have in past years in uh, in Omaha. It's not your typical Creighton team, like you mentioned, in terms of a potentially elite defense with Kalkbrenner leading the way. A couple issues with the Blue Jays for me, and you mentioned Shireman. We didn't see it a ton because he didn't face the competition that he faced in the one game in the tournament. I know it's a one-game sample size. You could take whatever out of it that you want in theory, but played Providence, a team in the Big East, so it has that connection in terms of going to Creighton now in his first season at a high major program. He didn't look the part in the half court in terms of being able to handle that physicality. Great downhill player. For McDermott's high-tempo offense, I'm not disagreeing. And maybe he doesn't necessarily need to be a half-court player in that sense in terms of attacking off the dribble if he's spacing the floor like he can. The question is, when he does attempt to do what he is capable of and was capable in the Summit League attacking off the bounce, he's going up against a much more physical conference. One other concern I have with Creighton is turnovers. The bottom 60 yes. turnover rate that's, last that's year. Fair. It's also the number going from 90-ish now to 30. We're working with what we're playing with. So they're bringing everything back. I totally, or pretty much everything back. I totally understand it from that standpoint. Those are just the uh, the two concerns that I have with the Blue Jays. Yeah, for me, Baylor Shireman doesn't need to be anywhere close to a go-to guy like he needed to be against Providence in that NCAA tournament game. So I think that mitigates some of the concern there. But, you know, I think he can play a Mitchell Ballack type of role in this offense, especially with his passing, which I think is very underrated. And, you know, if they're able to get him open looks, which Greg McDermott does as well as any coach in the country, I think he's going to thrive. He's going to have the green light from anywhere probably to 30 feet. 
And, you know, he's the type of player that doesn't really need to be a go-to guy in any sense of the word. He just has to fit his role in a team that was already very sound. So, you know, he just adds that perimeter shooting that they needed along with Farabello. And you hopefully get a leap from Nemhard and Alexander in terms of maybe, uh, you know, toning down some of the turnovers and the wildness they had in their freshman seasons. And, yeah, I'm just I'm very interested in the ceiling of this team. It's similar to a ceiling of a TCU just in terms of when you compare turnover issues from last year, if they're yes. able to tame some of those problems offensively, you bring in a guy like Wells who wasn't healthy last year for the Horned Frogs. So just of, of note there, a bigger number in the TCU Horned Frogs, and I mentioned already a couple teams I like and not one that I bet in Baylor, but Texas that I'm very high on and is one of my national title features bets. But Scott, as we kind of continue along here on the odds board, I want to touch on my other national title bet that I made in April. And then we can get to another team that you're high on out of the ACC. Maybe a team that you haven't pulled the trigger on, but a team that you're kind of like in terms of the makeup and being a threat in that conference. So a long shot that I bet going back to April when I think it was the night that Scotty Scheffler actually won the Masters, Scott. I don't know if you had won any money on Scheffler winning that that tournament. I had Cam I had Cam Smith fifty to one, so that was a heartbaking day for me. (laughs) Apologies. Apologies. No, it it happens. It happens. I mean, it is what it is. But yeah, Florida at the number you got is is a fascinating team this season. I'll let you go more into them, but uh the return of Colin Castleton was the key for everything. No question. Yeah. So I made the bet before Castleton came back. Then he comes back, and I think the number went down to around 190 to 1, depending on where you're shopping. So you're essentially, you bring in Todd Golden, who was a massive coaching upgrade from Mike White, who I thought was actually making strides, Scott, watching that Florida offense at the beginning of last season because they were running more five out to suit Castleton's game. I, I think at this point, year over year, he's going to be a better perimeter shooter than he was last year. And that also has to do with how Golden develops his bigs. If you go back to Masolski last season at San Francisco with Dons, but I was still kind of surprised that then he, all of a sudden he shifted back to kind of operating Castleton solely through the low post. So I, I kind of hate Mike White is essentially what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and and you have, um, again, a, a huge upgrade going from, from White to Golden. And then you bring in Kyle Lofton, who actually rated higher in terms of steal rate and passing rate, passing efficiency in terms of both of those percentiles, higher than Tyrese Hunter. And I know he's coming from a mid-major program, so a little different context when you look at some of those metrics, but still worth noting. Then you bring in a high ceiling four in Alex Fudge from LSU, a very good wing defender who hopefully develops his game offensively in Will Richard, Trey Bonham from VMI who could back up Lofton, and a very high ceiling offensive player in terms of the way Todd Golden wants to operate his offense, get efficient three-point shots and shots around the rim. This offense is going to be designed heavily around analytics, which you have to like in terms of guys coming together and actually making that jump in year one. Like we touched on with Texas, it doesn't necessarily always happen that quickly. So you have all the pieces coming in. You have defensive length. They didn't necessarily get the big that I would have liked alongside Castleton, like guys like Osunahi from St. Bonaventure, another St. Bonaventure transfer broom that ended up going from Moorhead State to Auburn. So I wish they added that one extra piece. And that's why I don't necessarily love the 60 to 80 to one range. I wouldn't jump on it right now. It might take time for them to develop. 
over the course of the season, but still a team I'm, I'm high on in the long term in terms of making a run in March. You know, the analytics thing is something to note. He plays the two for ones. He plays advantages. He's going to have unique lineups and situational awareness that other coaches might not necessarily have. But, you know, I also think that this roster might be a year away. I mean, they had to rebuild on the fly. They had to get new pieces in. Getting Castleton back was key. But I just have concerns that when Colin Castleton's your best player and in a year of so many great big guys, he's not even maybe in the top five. Uh, you could debate that, but I, I just wonder if this team really has the star power to match the ceiling of some of these other teams we've talked about. And, you know, a lot of that's going to come with Golden getting this first year roster together. There's been some positive buzz around a lot of guys on campus. Riley Kugel is one of the highest rated, uh, you know, in-state recruits that they brought yes. in. And, you know, Jonathan Gavoini is already kind of touting him on Twitter after seeing a practice. So there is a lot to like here, especially at the number you got them at, but, you know, again, this is Todd Golden's first time coaching high major basketball. The SEC has been very difficult top to bottom in the last couple of years, and there's a lot of great coaches in that league. So that's an adjustment for him as well. You know, a lot of these coaches and programs we've talked about before this are, you know, traditional guys that have been in place for many years. Golden is kind of an outlier in that he's coming up from the mid-major ranks, and this is his first year in the spotlight in the SEC. So, again, I think he's going to be a heck of a coach. It's a great hire in a lot of senses, but there are question marks as to how this roster acclimates, how Todd Golden acclimates, and how this team just looks overall. No, 100%. It's baked into the number, especially a, a massive number I got. How quickly can you develop chemistry and camaraderie in year one, not only from a coaching level, but from a personnel standpoint. To give Golden a little more credit, he was an assistant under Bruce Pearl on that Final Four team. So he That's does have fair. history of, of coaching a high major program, but you make the jump from an, or can you make the jump in year one from an elite assistant? He was the guy that brought in Harper at Auburn, mind you, to now a head coach with star power, maybe not the star yeah. power that you would like at a bet to win a national title. But at that number, that was my thinking going into it. So we go from Scott, an inexperienced head coach, to a very experienced head coach, another team that I know you want to touch on from the ACC. Yeah, I think Virginia is a little bit uh, underrated here, Eli, especially when you potentially look at an ACC conference bet with just how Tony Bennett has a mastery of that conference and an ability to win there. But, you know, this isn't going to be the sexiest team to watch. We know that they're going to play slow. They're going to grind it out. But, you know, I think a lot of the pitfalls that they underwent last season, they have a chance to really shake things up in the ACC this year. And, you know, Kihei Clark is one of the most veteran point guards returning in college hoops. I think Armand Franklin's three-point percentage should ideally go back up from a sub-30%. And, you know, Caden Shedrick, someone we've talked about off-pod, I think is only going to get better and better as he continues to add weight. So, yeah, this is an interesting team for me. You're kind of banking on Tony Bennett here. I don't necessarily love them as a national title contender at the number that they're currently at, which I think I saw 60 in some places. I'm trying to find it here offhand real quick, but you know, I, I don't 40, love them. There's some, there's a 40, a 50, even a 60 out there, depending on where you're there's looking. two. Yeah. There's a couple sixties at places like Caesar. So, you know, that's an okay number. I don't necessarily view them as a national title contender at this point, but what I do like is the seven to one ACC number that places like rivers have. I think that North Carolina's aspirations are on bigger things than the ACC. There's no question that they are the best team in the ACC and they have the most talent. Um, you know, Duke is going to do some interesting things in terms of their freshman class and John Shire's first year. But, 
you know, I think Virginia, there's a lot to be said for them kind of sneaking up on some people and creeping at a decent number, particularly to win the ACC. I think we have our first show bet here on outside shots, which is uh, <laughs> Virginia to win the conference at seven to one. I'm I'm with you, Scott. I'm very high on on the who's I have them rated 12th and in my lines.com college basketball power ratings. And you, you mentioned offensively with Franklin kind of reasserting himself as a three point shooter going back to his Indiana, what, two seasons there with the Hoosiers, yeah. go from the Hoosiers to the Hoos. But it's it's kind of similar to me with my Florida thinking. I didn't necessarily mention this name, but Myron Jones underperformed. And I guess you could say you would expect that under Mike White going from, but going from how he shot at Penn State, then it took a massive downturn at Florida in his first year. I think he's going to, I think that three-point percentage is going to spike back up. So similar to what you're talking about with Virginia's three-point shooting, seeing some positive regression, you get Vanderplas from from Ohio, which adds to that perimeter floor space. And you mentioned Clark, the rim protection with Shedrick and Cafaro. It's questionable in terms of the half court because when Gardner isn't, that mid-range shot isn't going down, then things kind of start to get sporadic, especially when the the floor spacing isn't there, which it, it wasn't consistently, at least with a guy like Franklin. But I think Vanderplas starts to refine those numbers uh, along with Franklin going back to what he typically shoots at from three. So I, I'm with you, Scott. I, I think in, in terms of the context of the ACC, we've already touched on what we don't like about North Carolina. And then a team like Duke that brought in some veteran pieces off the bench and you still have a, a veteran point guard that came around in the tournament, probably became arguably their second best player and their second most important player in the NCAA tournament going to the final four. But from a shooting standpoint, just from a freshman expectation standpoint, how much can you expect from Lively and Whitehead when they're dealing with their own injuries at a time where you really need to uh, develop in this early portion of non-conference play? Yeah, Duke is easily the most fascinating team in the country to me. Obviously, replacing Coach K is going to be a monster storyline in and of itself. But then you look at John Shire with the just ridiculous freshman class that he has coming in. And, you know, on paper, the talent level's there. But it's just going to be kind of a complete mystery in terms of what we see from this team and, and how they actually decide to play until they actually roll the ball out there. Because, you know, you look at John Shire as a head coach, uh, he's replacing the biggest shoes in the game in the history of the game. And uh, again, I, I don't love that Whitehead's hurt right now. I think they're going to have an incredible front court with Lively and Filipowski and how those two can complement each other. But again, with the question marks there, I, I think that, you know, you look at some of these secondary teams like Virginia, who only does have to play Duke once in the ACC schedule. And that's an interesting seven to one number for me. I think that's our show bet here. Virginia to win the ACC conference at seven to one for better or worse. And you can check out more analysis on that over at the lines.com. But just to recap it, I have a futures bet on Texas at 35 to one best price. You can find in the market is 30 to one over at Caesars. And Scott is taking Creighton at 30 to one to win the national title as well. And we also have a show bet on Virginia to win the ACC at 7-1. to So three bets that I that I like overall. We're not going to try to overdo it here. I think people that have a massive futures portfolio, unless you're taking a bunch of long shots, is a little much. And I mentioned Florida, too, that I have a long shot, but wouldn't necessarily bet at the current number, especially because they didn't get the, the last piece as a big man that I wanted. But, Scott, let's take a look here at some of the early, early games. In the first week, that is a very small slate, and... 
I'll kind of run through some spots that I'm looking at here. The first bet that I have in Discord that you can go check out, go subscribe to the lines.com Discord channel, get notifications on when Scott and I, again, make single game bets and futures bets throughout the college basketball season. I bet Oral Roberts on Friday. So yesterday as we're recording this on on Saturday evening here. Bet Oral Roberts at plus 10.5 against St. Mary's. That number is down to plus 9, plus 9.5. Maybe a a plus 10 you might be able to find. Uh, St. Mary's, you lose two huge pieces for their ball screen offense in terms of Matisse Toss and and Tommy Cousy. So I think St. Mary's is a little bit overvalued. And you also think about a a St. Mary's defense that forces opponents to run a lot of isolation scoring sets. And you think about how they run teams out the three-point line as well. And those are a little bit concerning factors going into this game, but they are susceptible in terms of off-the-dribble three-point shooting. You think about Oral Roberts bringing back their top three three-point shooters going back to last season, including Max A. Smith. So I think Oral Roberts is able to keep this thing within three possessions. So you can check out that write-up over at thelines.com. It should be up as this podcast goes up on Monday morning. Scott, any intrigue for you and a team like Oral Roberts that when you think about not only do they have their best three-point shooters back, but they also brought in a couple of key bigs, transfers, in Connor Vanover and Patrick Mawaba from UT Arlington, who I really like as a mid-major 4-5. First, can I just say how incredible it is that we get to see Max Abmus stay? <laughs> I mean, like in an era of up-transfers and NIL and guys just going to the highest bidder or the highest league, to see him stay put and now have a really fun mid-major team around him is just going to be a ton of fun to watch this year. And, you know, looking over this roster, there's so many guys now that are able to complement his explosive scoring ability. And, you know, you touched on McBride and Moaba and some of these other guys. And we were talking a little bit about Connor Vanover off pod and, you know, obviously not the player that many envisioned him being as a potential, you know, four-star top 100-ish recruit who was recruited in state to Arkansas. But, you know, at seven foot five, you just don't see that type of size every single night, especially at the mid-major level and especially on an opening night of the season. So I I do like your play here. I think if Abmus has a big game and starts to get loose that they could potentially even pull off an outright. But, you know, to me, getting that ten and a half is key. And I think that this is going to be an interesting opening night game compared to the awful slate of games that we generally have. I'm with you. I think I think Oral Roberts is live here too. I I did sprinkle a little bit on the money line. Not, you know, my overall Ooh. bet. My overall bet. You're at the plus ten and a half. I would bet this thing down to plus nine if that's the only number you can get. The only concern and I, I mentioned also again the isolation scoring, forcing teams to score in those ISO sets, which Randy Bennett does as well as any major coach and probably at a top 10 rate among the high major coaches across college basketball. But Logan Johnson is also an elite isolation defender. So him going up against Ace Miss, who's a very high-level scorer, that's a little concerning. We saw Johnson slow down Jamari Bouye going back to some of those St. Mary's and San Francisco matchups last season. One other game that I want to touch on here, because it's the most notable game on the card this week, Scott, is, is Michigan State and Zaga. If we look ahead to Friday, and I'll have some write-ups up over some other games that I want to bet on on Friday's card, but probably not a game I'm interested in betting, but just because you have two notable teams. My issue with Michigan State, even though they're probably going to get around three possessions, maybe this thing climbs up to 9.5 or 10 with Gonzaga laying a little over three possessions, 
Michigan State's going to struggle to rebound after what they lost in the front court. You can make the case that Marcus Bingham was out of position at times, but he's still a a body and a a rebounding presence for them going back to last season. And especially if Joey Hauser is your five-man, you are going to struggle a lot defensively. So I'm kind of higher than on A.J. Hogarth because I think Hogarth's going to take a step up offensively and that backcourt could be semi-explosive with him and Walker. I just have a lot of concerns with their ability to limit second chance shots and also just defensively with Joey Hauser going up against Drew Timmy. Good luck. Yeah, there's a lot of skittishness around that program right now, too. The exhibition game was very underwhelming. I think they were losing at the half, if I'm not mistaken. When you know you take an exhibition game, it is what it is. But when you're losing to a D2 opponent, it scares your fan base a little <laughs> bit, justifiably so. But you know, I just worry about this team's lack of star power. And it's not that... Izzo has ever needed stars to be successful. On the contrary, he's one of the best at maximizing what he has. But again, when he has been at his best, he's had All-Americans. He's had Cassius Winston at his disposal. He's had, you know, studs that could really play. And that that this team just lacks a stud. I mean, there's plenty of steady veteran pieces. You know, when you have guys that have played for three or four years under Tom Izzo, you expect them to understand the role and know what they're doing. But I mean, where's the double-figure scoring coming from? Is it going to be that balanced where they're able to compete with an elite-level team like Gonzaga, where Michigan State's going to be able to compete for the Big Ten this season? I have my doubts, but, you know, you never doubt Tom Izzo. He gets the most out of his guys when possible. Again, the slow start to the exhibition, just kind of the the skittishness around the, the fans of the program right now. This is going to be kind of a fascinating early test for Michigan State. No question, and... While I was, you know, I had my issues with Gabe Brown's shot selection at times. He was a little shot happy going back to last year when when his role expanded. And Max Christie also, even, but even though I question their shot selection at times, they're still much more high-level scores than what Michigan State yeah. probably has on the roster right now. And then Malik Hall, I think, is going to take a step up for them offensively. But again, still a lot of He definitely marks. will. Yeah, I think, you know, Malik, Malik Hall is going to be, a, you know, a pillar in their front court. He's been there for four years. You know, Hauser's been there for three, four years after the transfer. Like, they, again, these are guys that have played for many years under Tom Izzo. But, you know, Jaden Akins needs to make that leap that everyone's talking about. He's got to be healthy. Potentially making. He's got to be healthy, too. But I just, I just don't see the star power here. It really concerns me quite a bit in terms of their ceiling. That's going to do it for us here on the first episode of the Outside Shots podcast. Again, remember to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That is no longer iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and review. Leave us a five-star review, and you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card. And if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe (laughs) and ring the bell to get notifications for whenever a new episode is live. And Scott, this was a lot of fun, man. Follow Scott on Twitter at Hoops. Follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich. Scott, any last words before we sign off? It's going to be a really fun season, Eli. Like we said, there's not really a juggernaut contender that is kind of a a head above the rest. So to see some of these early season tournaments that we're looking forward to during feast week, you know, the PK events are obviously unique every five years, and that brings a lot of star power together. I think we're really going to start to see things around Thanksgiving week. But, you know, these first couple of weeks will still teach us a lot about some of these teams. And hopefully as the matchups start to pick up, we'll see some good games here. No question. And that'll do it for our first episode of the Outside Shots podcast. So long, and we'll talk to you next Monday. Yeah.